Hello, welcome to episode number 121 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Richard Antaramian, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Southern California. He's the author of the book Brokers of Faith, Brokers of Empire, Armenians and the Politics of Reform in the Ottoman Empire, published by Stanford University Press. The book examines the reception of the Ottoman Empire's major modernizing reforms of the mid-19th century among the Armenian community. It gives a very detailed account of how the Armenian elite's interactions with the state went through a fundamental shift, moving from a relatively light-touch, decentralized but very sophisticated order to a much more vertical, state-directed system in which various communities, not just the Armenians, became more closely enmeshed in high-stakes political and social contests. Before we get going, First, let me remind you once again that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras, including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you 35% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve deeper into the subject. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Richard Antaramian. The era of 19th century reform that his book examines is often referred to as the Tanzimat, referring to a modernizing edict issued in 1830. I started by asking Richard to introduce for the layperson or lay listener what exactly the Tanzimat was and why it was introduced. So the, the Tanzimat literally means uh, the reordering and it seeks to reorganize the Ottoman Empire as a whole. Historians generally have defined it as the period from 1839 to 1876. Uh, 1839 being when the Tanzimat edict is announced by uh, Sultan Abdul Majid I and then concluding with the introduction of the Midhat constitution in 1876. What the empire was trying to do by reordering typically the Tanzimat is understood as something that's applied in two different arenas that are typically understood as separate from one another. Uh, the first would be the centralization of the state. So leading up to 1839, the Ottoman state is dealing with a lot of challenges that emanate largely from the edges of the empire. So the galvanizing event that probably precipitates 
States, the introduction of the Tanzimat in October of 1839, would be the Battle of uh, Nejib earlier that year, uh, where Egyptian forces basically destroy the Ottoman army. And the, it's only with the help of European states that the Ottoman Empire avoids in t- total collapse. So what this makes abundantly clear to the Ottoman state is that it needs to actually begin a much more proactive centralization campaign, uh, where it's going to bring these edges of the empire more intimately, bind them more intimately with the imperial center. So the centralization element is really crucial for understanding the Tandimat and what it's trying to fix. So you know, previous to that, of course, as I said, 1839, Battle of Nejib. But you know, before that, obviously, we have the Greek Rebellion beginning in 1821, which culminates with Greek independence in 1830. Going back further, we have you know, issues arising out of Arabia uh, with uh, the House of Saud. And you kind of go back into the 18th century and you see that, again, these pressures emanating from the edges become a real constant challenge to the rule of the Ottoman Imperial Center. So 1839, we have Tanzimat, and it's with 1839 that we see this rapid expansion of the imperial bureaucracy. The bureaucracy you know, fans out across the empire, uh, it challenges local notables in different parts of the empire, and this bureaucracy tries to unify and centralize practice across time and space. The idea is that you go from a situation in which uh, you know what works in the Balkan, these series of arrangements that work in the Balkans, and then you have these series of arrangements that work in Arab-speaking lands and a series of arrangements that work in you know, the Kurdish-dominated areas, and they want to do away with that and make it such that the same system works all across the empire. So uh, that's the first kind of major element of, of the Tanzimat, uh, is that the state wants to kind of displace these powerful uh, local notables, uh, regional notables at the edges of the empire and thus centralize the state. Uh, and then this you know, carries uh, forth in a, a number of different areas, including the, you know, the introduction of provincial laws that, again, give greater definition, uh, perfect these ideas that you're supposed to have a, a state that is uniform in practice across time and space. Uh, you see the introduction of Ottoman nationalities laws. All these are done in the vein of centralizing the state, turning power over from individuals, from various formations and investing it instead in the imperial state. Uh, the second element of the Tanzimat that has garnered the attention of scholars has been the effort to better integrate non-Muslims into the imperial body politic. And this this is generally associated with the 1856 uh, Islahat Firmana, Reform Edict, which mandates that each of the primary non-Muslim communities of the empire, which is understood to be the Armenian Apostolic, the Greek Orthodox, and the the Jewish, which is, of course, largely uh, Sephardic, although diverse in its own right. It requires them to reorganize their own communities and to generate these charters for regulating their own internal affairs. Uh, This is typically understood to be a failure. The argument being that that by creating these more kind of autonomous spaces for non-Muslims to pursue political agendas, you are, in fact, setting the groundwork for national mobilization. Uh, And that by turning power from the clergy over to the laity, you in fact secularize these communities, which again, uh, in lockstep with 19th century uh, modality,
capabilities is going to lead to the, uh, the cultivation of national identity and therefore national mobilization. And this has been treated as an orthodoxy of the historical scholarship for, I would argue, decades now, although this has been the subject of an interrogation in the last couple decades. So we have these two kind of separate planks of the of the Tanzimat that need to be, that I argue should be understood in conjunction with one another. Uh, in fact, if we take a closer look at the revisions being introduced into the uh, Armenian community in particular, but this would also, uh, based on what I've seen, apply to the to a lesser extent with the Jewish community, but certainly also with the the Greek Orthodox community. What we see is that the, the, the imperial state is actually pursuing these centralization programs. Uh, that we see being unraveling at this, you know, this higher level, where you have this conflict between the imperial state and largely Muslim notables at the edge of the empire. Uh, those processes, those policies, are actually being addressed through the reorganization of the non-Muslim communities. Now, I think this is a really important point to note here and stress because I think generally the conventional wisdom on the Tanzimat, or rather the popular uh, idea of it, is that it is a process actually of westernization. That's the kind of popular shorthand of it. And actually, I think it's a more logical way to look at it is to actually think about it, as you say there, as centralization. And, you know, that centralization process motivated really by saving the state as they saw it. And also one of the other aspects aspects of the kind of general popular wisdom is that uh, this process granted religious minorities equal and more rights, often at the behest of European powers who pressured for this to happen. But in the book, you frame it in a different way, arguing that it was uh, uh, this whole reform process was actually a way for the central government to exert more control over Armenians and other communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually meant the obliteration, really, of earlier, more plural orders that existed within these communities and organized uh, their interaction with the central state and even though these were plural they were also kind of oppressive in their own way Um, and you described this previous order as a quote network world of imperial governance and it was a you know rather chaotic not obviously very standardized system but it wove communities more completely and more kind of sophisticatedly I suppose into Mm -hmm. uh, the Ottoman political order. Right. Uh, exactly. So if we were to understand what it is that the Tanzimat is trying to reorder, I think we need to take a step back and understand what that order was and how it came to be. In my reading of Ottoman imperialism, which you know I'm reading from the vantage point largely of Armenian institutions and the documents that they produce, if you take a step back and look at it, what you see is this imperial order that really comes into its own in the 18th century in response to the financial restructurings of the late 17th and early 18th centuries. So if we kind of go back into the 17th century, uh, in the 16th century as well, the Ottoman Empire is this place of constant turmoil and upheaval. Uh, The imperial state is arguably quite weak. It is forced to rely on a series of ad hoc relationships and partnerships that it establishes at different junctures, which have an element of expedience to them. So they are meant to solve issues at that moment, and then they just generate larger issues down the road. So when we come to the end of the of the 17th century and into the 18th century, there's this dramatic shift in how the empire is organized with these financial restructurings, which turn tax collection, which had previously been done on a rotating basis. So you have these you know, rotating tax collection appointments, and the way it works with tax farming is that an individual bids for the right to collect taxes from a given region, and they get the right 
to go and collect taxes from that region for you know a three-year period, for example. So they go out there, but since they're only there for a couple of years, they don't have any real interest in, gen- in developing those regions socially, economically, politically, etc. So they just go in there and they take everything they can. You know, they just they just strip the place down and they move on to their next appointment. Uh, so this enriches them, but it devastates the local economy. It doesn't just devastate the local economy, but it, it precludes the possibility of having regional economies integrate with one another to produce something that would be much stronger, much more resilient. And that, of course, leads these edges of the empire susceptible to external influences, the most obvious example you know, coming out of, out of Iran. So in response to this, the Ottoman Empire shifts to lifetime tax farming. And when you have people who are appointed to these, uh, they still have to bid for their tax farm. But when they have that appointment for life, they therefore have an investment in that part of the empire. They have an investment in that region. Because if they can oversee the establishment of a more robust economy, that is going to pay them back many times over. And by the time they have developed that type of economy, their roots there are very deep. Their position is, I don't want to say unassailable, but it's a very, they generate for themselves a very, very strong position. And that then allows them to really establish their own networks. It allows them to establish their own kind of households. It allows them to establish a position that they can then leverage against the state, but they're still required to uh, make those tax remittances. So this, as I said, this introduction of life-term tax farming really stabilizes uh, the empire and it you know, generates a lot of revenue that can be shared by everybody. And when everybody's sharing in this, uh, this windfall, that introduces political stability. And this is best exemplified by the Tulip era from 1703 to 1730, where you just have this you know, massive windfall of cash come into the hands of the Ottoman elite across the empire. Now, there are a couple of ways to read this, what these developments of the 18th century. For the longest time, people have understood this as the devolution of power from the imperial center to the provinces, which is to say the state had the power and now in order to save itself, it gives power to the provinces. Recently, people have begun to push back against that framing uh, and have instead, following the work of uh, Ali Yajolu, read it instead as a history of partnerships, where the state is now developing these partnerships. And from my reading of this, the state has these partnerships, but now these partnerships ensure that you have relative tranquility. That means instead that the state's position has been strengthened. The state doesn't have to constantly be on the lookout for rebellion. It means that the state's position has actually strengthened quite a bit. Now, in order to ensure that those partnerships remain kind of viable, you then have to turn to other groups in society. So in order to bid on these tax farms in the first place, would-be entrepreneurs, uh, they have to be Muslims. But Muslims typically don't have that kind of cash on hand. Muslim officials, people coming out of the military, people in the bureaucracy, people in the uh, Islamic clergy, the ulema, they typically don't have this type of cash on hand. So they have to go to people who do have that kind of cash on hand, which are the people who can charge interest in a Muslim empire, which are the non-Muslims. And in the 18th century, uh, this is typically going to mean going to either a lender who is either Jewish or Armenian. And what we see happening over time, over the course of the 18th century, is that the Jewish lenders tend to give more to the Janissaries, who are largely urban-based, and the Armenians tend to give more to the both the provincial notables and the imperial state. And such that by the end of the 18th century, 
country, the Armenians are not just financing the uh, notables at the edge of the empire. Uh, they are basically the exclusive financiers of both the sublime port, which say the Ottoman bureaucracy, and the sultanate, both the, the sultan and the, the valide sultan. So these Armenian moneylenders are the ones who are making lots of revenue, generating lots of revenue out of this tax collection process. The other thing that we see happening over the course of this of the 18th century is the rapid expansion of the ecclesiastical authority of both the Greek and the Armenian churches. And we have to ask ourselves why is it? I mean, the first, the, the first and most obvious answer to that is the state is in fact expanding its authority. So having an Istanbul-based uh, ecclesiastical institution expand its authority would simply, it would just kind of naturally support the efforts of the state to better understand, you know, to, to have a better sense of what's going on and to have partners, not just the notables, but the uh, the Armenian and Greek uh, clergy, uh, have them become partnered in the rule of the imperial state. And when we think about that, it is typically done in isolation from everything else, which is to say we have the expansion of this ecclesiastical authority. Uh, that therefore means that the clergy are more closely tied to the, to the Istanbul-based uh, patriarch. And then that means that you can have more uniform practice within the these churches. So when we think about non-Muslim communities in um, Ottoman imperial space, we typically see them as being somehow segregated from the rest of imperial society. So the, the community's own internal affairs, things like baptisms, marriage, divorce, death, uh, wills, and how inheritance is uh, split up. But we think of that as becoming this arena that gives non-Muslims general autonomy. And therefore, if we want to have an Istanbul-based patriarch have greater authority to regulate those things, that renders these imperial communities, these religious communities, more legible in the eyes of the imperial center, and therefore easier to kind of rule over. But then we have to ask ourselves, why is it in the Armenian case that these moneylenders who are close with both the, the provincial notables and also with the imperial state, why are they using all of their money, all of their influence to gain contr effective control over the institutions of the Armenian church? That's the big question. And an old line of argumentation simply said, well, they couldn't actually like participate in the other in larger political deliberations within the empire and therefore this was the only arena in which they could do these things now I, as i think about that all right maybe to a certain extent uh some of these guys would have wanted to kind of throw their weight around in the in, in the church and the community just as a kind of civic responsibility or something but with the amount of money that they're spending uh and the amount of effort they're using to gain control of the community the stakes had to be larger and if you take a closer look, what you see happening is we have this, this expanded ecclesiastical administration being introduced. It ties provincial clergymen closer to the Istanbul-based patriarch, which say it ties them closer to also to the Istanbul-based moneylenders. If you can control the clergy, then you can begin to use the community and its institutions for other things. And what we find happening is, is that the, the clergy 
clergy, because of the role they are supposed to play with respect to controlling and kind of uh, policing their own community, uh, this positions them quite well to forge long-standing, deep, powerful, stable relationships with provincial notables all across the empire. Uh, and in the book, I you know devote most of my space to discussing how this plays out in the Kurdish areas, Van, Akhtamar, etc., uh, a little bit of Erzurum as well. So the expansion of ecclesiastical authority with support of the imperial state and with financial backing from the uh, Armenian moneylenders, it actually creates a system whereby the Ottoman state can have greater influence and have used the institutions of the Armenian church and use Armenian financial capital to bind these provincial notables closer to the imperial state. One of the things I thought was interesting as I read the book is that casual observers sort of naively assume really that the communities that we're talking about, the religious groups that we're talking about, are sort of very homogenous and had uh, a shared set of interests. Mm -hmm. And as you show in the book, there are all kinds of dynamics going on under the surface and on the surface. And you show really that uh, there were all kinds of internal disputes and contradictions and different kind of power struggles within the Armenian community as they tried to kind of negotiate this reform process that was going on. Right. And this brings us back to the larger question of Tanzimat and centralization. So when we come to the, the reforms and the Tanzimats, the 1856 reforms, again, as I as I said, I think where you, you were alluding, these are understood usually to mean the secularization of the community, the westernization and modernization of the imperial state. But we need to instead understand it as a question of centralization. Uh, and to this point, this Armenian national constitution that we see introduced in 1860 originally, uh, reintroduced in 1863 after a brief suspension in 1862. If we actually read it, which so many people who have had opinions on it have not, it's not secularization. This is the complete reorganization of an ecclesiastical community, of a confessional community. And what the, the introduction of the Armenian constitution does is it effectively creates a diocese. And, and by in so doing, it pulls these provincial prelacies out of these relationships of power with government officials, with merchants, with uh, regional Muslim notables, the, the introduction of this uh, this diocese is going to pull all of these people out. It's going to pull the institutions of the Armenian church out of these relationships and instead subordinate them to limited popular controls. Uh, you know, going back to the foundations of the Armenian church in the fourth century, the influence and the participation of the laity has always been profound. Uh, it's not like the Catholic church in this respect. The introduction of the Armenian constitution instead turns the selection process over to provincial Armenian assemblies, which are themselves representative bodies that are elected by the Armenian men, male adults, who are living under the jurisdiction of that particular prelacy. So once they have the ability to select their own prelates, prelates who are now subject to certain popular controls, this creates a new political dynamic, and these prelates now have less incentive to kind of do the bidding of the elites. Uh, they have less incentive to play ball with these provincial uh, notables instead. Uh, instead, they are assigned the responsibility of representing their flock to the imperial government. So now these institutions are being pulled out and they're instead being assigned the responsibility of working with the government, working with this expanding bureaucracy to fight against the prerogatives claimed by these regional notables. 
Uh, so that's the so that's the, that's the tension that we see the political contention that's generated by the introduction of this reform because it creates new possibilities. It, it allows people to envision an Ottoman imperial society that is more representative, an Ottoman imperial society that is representative in which they themselves play a role, in which they themselves are able to dictate what it will look like. Now, the Ottoman Empire went to war with the Russian Empire in 1877 and 1878, and this had huge effects, indirect and direct effects, on dynamics within uh, the Ottoman Empire. And specifically with uh, the uh, Armenian community, it sort of tied the Armenian question more closely, I suppose, to Russia and the Ottoman Empire's relations with Russia. Uh, and it made also the uh, Tanzimat reforms and the kind of integration, really, of communities like the Armenians into the centralized structure much more difficult. Could you just talk about how the Ottoman-Russian War of 1877-1878 changed things with regard to the dynamics that we're talking about here? Sure. So a, a couple of things. Firstly, before the war, as Armenians are introducing these new arrangements, as they're trying to introduce this constitution, people on the ground, Muslim, Armenian, all understand the stakes of what's being played out. And you'll have uh, Muslim notables who will actually fight alongside the Armenian, we can call them reactionaries, who are trying to preserve this order, this kind of network order of things. Uh, so we have examples that the most... Uh, apparent example would be the 1864 murder of the Catholicos of Akhtamar by members of Khan Mahmoud's family. Khan Mahmoud uh, famously joined with Bedir Khan Bey in the, um, this general Kurdish uprising in the southeast that unfolds in the 1840s. And then you'll have Kurdish notables uh, joining together with uh, Armenian clergy and their allies among the laity uh, throughout the 1860s and 1870s, trying to, in, in places like Erzurum, places like Ban, Bashkale, uh, etc., trying to undermine the introduction of these ecclesiastical reforms. So everybody understands what the stakes are. And Armenians who are trying to introduce reforms, they see themselves now as the partners of the state. They understand that this, you know, this partnership has emerged between the state and the community in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and they now see themselves as the people who are the shepherds of that partnership. Uh, and therefore, in their estimation, that gives them the right to make claims on the empire's politics to make claims on the coercive capacity of the of the imperial state which is to say that if they have an issue with you know a kurdish group or a turkmen group or a circassian group coming into their village and you know stealing produce or what have you uh that they are well within their right to file a report with the state and expect justice be meted out as we get into the 1870s, we begin to see that those expectations are not really being met. And they're not being met for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is that the Armenians probably take this partnership a little more seriously than they should. They probably are a bit too enthusiastic about their expectations of the state are uh, perhaps a bit exaggerated at this juncture. But the other part of it is that the state itself is cash-strapped. The idea is that you introduce the centralized order, you introduce this bureaucracy, uh, and it will create 
create a system that will work, but you, know, you need lots of things to make that work, which the state doesn't, which the state lacks at this time. So the, the system is not working as either the state or the Armenians would like. Uh, and the state increasingly finds itself compelled to make concessions to the provincial notables. But these are provincial notables now who have fewer points of interaction with the Armenians precisely because the Armenians are carrying out their reform. Right? Armenians are pulling their institutions out of these relationships that have linked them with with imperial society, which say both the government and the, the regional notables, it's pulled them out of those relationships. So now these, these notables who previously would have worked with the Armenians to negotiate with the state, and we have multiple examples of the state having to turn to Armenian clergymen to uh, you know, broker relationships, you know, to broker deals or communicate with Kurds on behalf of the state. Now the Armenian community is that intermediate, as that mediating force ceases to exist. So we see the state beginning to force relationships more clearly with the provincial notables. And the so the Armenians begin falling a little bit by the wayside uh, because they they have now you know cast their lot with the state, but it's a state that no longer really needs them for that mediating role. And these provincial notables who also had benefited from this mediating role no longer need them either. So by the time we get to by the time we get to the war with the, the Russians in 77, 78, this becomes more apparent. And we have Kurdish groups that had been that had responded to the call to mobilize they go to the front in the Caucasus. They're routed. Uh, the Russians route the Ottoman army in most places. Various Kurdish groups that had mobilized were hit especially hard. They just turn around and retreat from the front. And in the course of their retreat, they begin plundering Armenian villages. The most uh, egregious uh, instance probably being in uh, in uh, Bayezid. Then we, of course, have the various treaties, uh, first San Stefano and then Berlin, which are supposed to introduce certain reform schemes to Armenian inhabited territories in the Ottoman Empire. What this means, how it's interpreted by different groups remains a subject of, of debate. But coming out of all of this, uh, we do see a Kurdish, a major Kurdish rebellion being led by uh, Sheikh Ubedullah. Uh, Sheikh Ubedullah, um, a Naqshbandi Sheikh, leads this massive Kurdish uprising that spills across the border with Iran. And it's eventually put down. But in the aftermath of this, the Ottoman state pretty much makes its peace with a large number of these Kurdish uh, notables. And it makes a peace with them where it effectively turns over much political authority, much political social authority to these different uh, Kurdish groups uh, integrate certain you know, elements of, of these uh, these confederations into um, the bureaucracy, into the judiciary, uh, so that they are being kind of tied to the state more clearly. But again, this is a space in which Armenians play no role. No longer Armenians playing the mediating role between communities. Uh, Armenians are now kind of off to the side. They're, they're cast off to the side. And what we see happen uh, thereafter now is under Abdul Hamid, you know, they, they kind of turn an increasingly blind eye to abuses of Armenians. So we had this networking world previously. Again, it wasn't something that was great for a common Armenian, right? Your, your provincial Armenian is not living any type of life of luxury, but it's one in which, uh, you know, their honor, their property, their lives are valued because they are part, their community is part of this complex imperial system. Now their community has, in the course of 
different form, severed those threads that had connected them to the imperial body politic previously. Right? So the introduction of communal reform as part of the Tanzimat, which is supposed to integrate these people into the imperial body politic, actually severs the links that had connected them to at least one form of imperial governance. So it's then throughout the 1880s that we see an increase in the number of violent acts carried out against the Armenians. When the Armenians complain about this, so again, Armenians have used their institutions for decades at this juncture to make claims on the imperial government to say, look, these are problems, please address them. The imperial government comes back to them and says, you are not allowed to use your religious institutions for political purposes anymore. Jebdet Pasha, Abdul Hamid's closest advisor, arguably, tells the Armenians, you can only use your religious institutions for religious purposes. So if you have a question about you know, getting a berat for, for, a patri- you know, for a patriarch or for a, a prelate, you can come talk to us. If you have problems, if you want to remove a prelate who's creating problems for you, uh, you know, then you can come to us and talk about it. But if you want to complain about Kurds or you want to complain about a, a gendarme or you want to complain about a governor, you can't actually use your own institutions for that. And that marks a significant transformation of imperial governance where effectively the Armenian community plays no more role. They have no more protection. They're not getting protection from informal, the, the semi-formal relationships that have anchored the community in the empire in the first place. They're not getting protection from the government uh, and they're basically left to their own devices. So this comes to a head arguably with uh, two you know, interrelated developments. Um, the first is the trial of Musabe. Um, Musabe is a, a Kurd. His family belongs to one of these groups that had been integrated in, into the kind of imperial state structures in the course of the 70s and 80s. And uh, Musabe rapes an Armenian woman named Gulizar, murders her husband. She murder, he murders her husband and then takes her and uh, rapes her. And this was not a surprising uh, development. What was surprising about is that the Armenians take the case to court. And the case goes to court in, uh, it, it's taken to uh, Istanbul. Uh, and Jeb, the aforementioned Jebded Pasha basically engineers the, the verdict. Uh, and uh, Musabe is exonerated. Uh, he's returned to Mush, where he was based and where the rape had occurred. And this is a clear signal then to everyone else in the provinces now that Armenians are fair game. You can do with Armenians as you wish. So this is a clear sign that the state has its partnership now with the Kurds. It has no partnership with the Armenians. And now anytime Armenians raise an issue, anytime an Armenian tries to petition the state for some type of redress, it's now viewed as a challenge to the status quo. And therefore, it's viewed as a challenge to the state's authority. And Armenians are therefore seen in an increasingly a seditious light. Uh, and anything Armenians do is regarded as a challenge to, to the state. And um, they, they no longer have a place to play at this juncture. And then related to that, early 1890s, we see the formation of the Hamidiyeh, uh, these uh, cavalry reg- regiments of, uh, of Kurds who are deputized by the Ottoman state as a militia, uh, which is tasked with this kind of unclear policing and mil- slash military role where they're supposed to secure the borderland areas, which of course just gives them a green light to go after Armenians. Because if an Armenian complains about you, they are potentially revolutionary. Anytime an Armenian does anything beyond you know, subservience, they can be castigated as a revolutionary and therefore you can go after them all you want. Uh, so we see this you know, situation in which Armenians had shared in power, shared in sovereignty, but the introduction of the Tanzimat, and particularly the introduction of communal reform, it's set all of those ties and leaves the Armenian community as something that is just takes up space, something that can just be exploited, that has no way of communicating with the other groups in imperial society by the 1880s, 1890s. 
Now, to conclude here, I just wonder if we could wrap things up by talking about how all this informs our understanding, all these hopes of reform and disappointments associated with the perceived failure of reform. How does all this inform our understanding of what happens later? Essentially, the uh, the liquidation of the Armenian presence from Anatolia, the Armenian genocide after 1915. Sure. So I'm, I'm being really speculative with what I'm about to say. So this is, these are based on uh, inferences I've made in the course of my work on the 19th century. But if we, if we think about this 200-year arc of Ottoman history, we see a state that is constantly trying to manage this complex imperial polity. Uh, and it's making arrangements left and right, and it's running into problems left and right as a result. But the general trend we see is that it is taking sovereignty away. It's taking sovereignty and power away from different groups and investing it into the state instead. So we see with the you know with the, the Greek rebellion that leads to the effective collapse of many of the Fenario household, the, the Greek Fenario households. Uh, it leads to the it leads then also to the destruction of the Janissaries. So again, these groups that had claimed some share of imperial power, of imperial sovereignty, are now losing that to the state. And then so the the Fenario had positioned themselves as the dragomans, the translators. 1821 said we get a translation bureau as part of the Ottoman state. Uh, Armenians had underwritten life-term tax farming. 1839, tax farming is abolished. It's instead made, tax collection is instead made part of the imperial state apparatus. So the state is constantly taking these things away and investing it in itself. And in the course of doing so and removing these intermediary groups who are largely non-Muslim, uh, you know, we have the, the Janissaries destroyed. We also have a number of prominent uh, Jewish financiers who were aligned with the Janissaries, executed or forced into exile. So the state is constantly taking power away from these different groups. Uh, and as I said, we get to the 1880s, 1890s, it becomes apparent with the Armenians what's going on, that the state is now instead kind of forging its own connections, its own relation, establishing its own relationships with Kurdish groups without the intermediary role of the Armenians. So with the Armenians having less and less of a stake, that becomes and less and less of a role to play, that becomes uh, the kind of established practice, if you will. So when we get to 1908 and the Young Turk Revolution, the Young Turks are only too happy to use non-Muslims to help. So what we see happening is, is you know, this we see relationships being forged with, you know, the, the Turkmen, with the Circassians, with the, the Kurds. It's a state that, even if it's theoretically secularizing in certain respects, it's a state in which Muslim political identity remains remains powerful, but it's a Muslim political identity that is predicated in part on the exclusion of non-Muslims. So when we get to the Young Turks, they're only all too happy to use anybody who will join with them. Uh, this coming year with the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, they're only too happy to use any number of groups that will help them get to power. So we see, uh, you know, Greek, Armenian, Bulgarian, Macedonian groups all kind of flocking to the Young Turk banner. Um, but you know, these groups are only too happy to kind of use one another to just justify going after Abdul Hamid and removing him. We have to remember two things. The first is that, as I said, we have this Muslim political identity that is being forged. And it's one that in this community is being established. And it's one that the Young Turks in the Committee for Union and Progress, even though you know their leadership is largely atheist, uh, they still see this Muslim political community in national terms. Uh, they still see this as their community. So that doesn't change. And the Committee for Union and Progress sees that as their community that they 
they represent. And then the other thing that hasn't changed is, you know, you've done nothing in the interim to address the massive structural imbalance that has emerged between the Armenians and their Muslim neighbors in the provincial areas. And you've done nothing to address these kind of failures of state that prioritized and um, really kind of emboldened these structural cleavages. So at the end of the day, as we get to, you know, as we go through 1908 to 1915, building up to the genocide, nothing's really changed for the Armenians, right? We, we have this momentary respite where the, the, the young Turk government says, yes, you know, we will address these problems. But then they realize just like everybody else, they can't actually address these problems. They don't have the ability to, uh, to do these things. And they themselves now feel the crush coming from war. Uh, they feel the crush coming from debts that the, that the state has accrued. And they kind of fall back into the same mode as did Abdul Hamid, which is to say, all right, we'll, we'll kind of establish these relations with these groups out here. Armenians don't really have a role to play. So whenever Armenians petition or point out something, that again is just a challenge to the status quo. The difference now being that Abdul Hamid was very you know, patriarchal. Um, he wasn't, he was trying to rule an empire. The young Turks, however, are influenced by European Enlightenment ideas. They're influenced by a European body of knowledge that prioritizes, fetishizes to a certain extent, science. And the sciences that are popular at this time are things like uh, eugenics, um, you know, the writings of people like Herbert Spencer. Uh, these are the types of things that the Young Turks are consuming. So when they look at the Armenians now and they see them as a challenge, they see them as a threat to the empire, uh, they see them to a certain extent in biological terms as well. Uh, they're not just a group that has to be disciplined and made to know their, their place. They are in fact a cancer that is destroying the body politic and they need to be removed entirely. So again, the Young Turks and Abdul Hamid confronted with the same type of problems, but they pursue very different solutions to those problems. And for the Young Turks, it will be the liquidation of the of the Armenians, right? You have to remove this group from the body politic entirely if you wish to save it. You have to cut the cancer out entirely. And that's what they do. That was Richard Antaramian. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 121. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon. Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to WilliamJohnArmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.